You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. The Houseman XP Podcast Network is taking you on the journey. Your host, Master Trainer Heath Hyatt, will combine his decades of experience as a houndsman and as a professional trainer that will light the path forward and make our packs lighter on this lifelong journey to become better hunters and houndsmen. There are no shortcuts, so lace up those boots and grab a dog leash. The journey begins now. I've been a member and supporter of Go Wild for over a year now. Man, how time flies. Their social media platform is for hunters by hunters. And if you followed me for any length of time, you know that I'm in the woods or on the water if I'm not working. And yes, some ask, do you work? Unfortunately, I do. It's a place that I post all of my trophies, no matter how big or small. Mine, mostly small. I get tips, tricks, tactics, and advice from people who eat, breathe, and sleep the outdoors. I log all of my outdoor adventures, including the time spent listening to the best podcast in the land, The Journey, hosted by no other than yours truly. So when I need anything outdoors, I just log on to the Go Wild store, pick out what I need, and that's anything from hunting, fishing, camping, optics, outdoor wear, and yes, hound supplies. I'm proud to partner up with the Go Wild team. So let's get your journey started today here on Go Wild. On this episode of The Journey, today's episode, um, we had a podcast on a couple of weeks, I don't know, maybe a month ago, where Bridger Petrini had got attacked by a bear. And that that podcast came out while I was in Maine. And when we were in Maine, you know, in the evenings and stuff, we were sitting around and watching YouTube TV and whatever. And we got to watching Extreme Rescues. So it kind of brought this subject up. And I thought it would be very important to maybe discuss this because a lot of us guys are in the in the backcountry I know you guys out west are way out of, of touch with, with um, people and civilization where you guys hunt. You know, for me here on the East Coast, it's not so bad, but I still could be several miles from a road or a trailhead or something in some of the places that I hunt. So I'm going to have on today a good friend. It's Chad McCoy, and he was a chief master sergeant in the military. And Chad and I met through Freedom Hunters. Uh, we brought Chad up and uh, done a hunt with him. And he come back this, um, again for another hunt. And we become friends. We keep in touch. And it's just some of those relationships you build. But um, this was Chad's job in the military is, you know, pararescue. I'll let him talk about that. But we'll talk about the hunt a little bit. But Chad, how's everything down on the... You in a, you're not on the coast, but hot down in Florida, isn't it? Oh, it's brutal, man. Um, only rescue we need down here is cold water and some shade. But um, 
Yeah, life's good down here in Florida. So give the listener, and well, you've been on the podcast with us before. I know you were on when we actually did um, the hunt. Just give us a little background for you and set it up so the guys understand what your experience and expertise is because it is, um, I mean, it's very high, high expertise in your field. Yeah, so um, not a lot of people know about pararescue. Uh, pararescue started, well, really, it started in the Korean War, but got its um, really cut its teeth in Vietnam. So guys would go down the hoist into enemy fire and pull people out. Um, they were doing this, I mean, all the time, just, you know, kind of uh, living, the, living the motto of that others may live. So putting yourself out there so others can come home. And... You know, over the over the past few decades, pararescues evolved. In the past twenty years, um, pararescue um, really served a function to to rescue you know down pilots in the early days. But then, when the war on terror happened, uh, pararescue was kind of everywhere, all over the theaters. You know, responding to any kind of crisis that happened. So, PJs either are, are with helicopters or airplanes. They jump out of the airplane, parachute down. Um, or, you know, hoist down out of a helicopter, or they're attached to a, another soft team. So, you know, a, a team of SEALs or, or Special Forces guys, and that PJ is there to uh, do all the rescue and recovery. And so think about having, you know, kind of 911 attached to your team. So um, the mission sets kind of span the whole gamut. So there's really no mission that a PJ can't respond to. Um, and it's not an exaggeration. I mean, they, they rescue guys off the, the side of Mount McKinley, you know, and glacier rescue, uh, they'll parachute into the middle of the ocean rescue, you know, somewhere off a ship. And then the combat side, you know, a house explodes, crushes somebody. They lift the house up and get them out. Um, a car gets blown up. It's upside down. They cut through the car and get them out. Um, there really isn't a mission space that pararescue is, hasn't trained, uh, to be proficient at and, and candidly, you know, be an expert at. And so it takes years to make a PJ. It takes a few years of training. Um, you know, everyone likes to say that their selection's the toughest. I don't really care who's the toughest. Um, ours is good. It gets good guys in the door. And then, you know, we spend years to make them proficient, all these skills. So rope rescue, uh, medicine, parachuting, diving, you, you know, you name it, they've got it in their repertoire. And so, um, yeah, they are, you know, they are the DOD's uh, dedicated rescue and recovery force. Uh, there's the only, it's the only group within the entire military that's dedicated mission is rescue. And so um, a lot of guys would say, well, Marines, you know, do trap teams and rescue, you know, you guys are down. They do it as an, you know, as an additional duty. Uh, PJs do it as their primary job. So the only one's just dedicated, focused on planning and recovery and, and execution. So um, yeah, that, that's my, that was my life in a nutshell. I did that for about 23 years, retired a few years ago, and now I'm just a dirty civilian talking about experiences that, uh, uh, half of them are probably lies anyways. So. <laughs> yeah. And I know that you and I, we're going, we're planning a fishing trip for this spring. We'll go get you up here and get out on the river a little bit. So <laughs> I can't we'll fall in the water this time. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you can save us if we do. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about that. Um, just let, recap your hunt real quick with us. I know that you come up for the early season and, you know, kudos to you, Chad. And I, you know, this says a whole lot about you. We, tr how many bear did we tree? 
eight or nine. It was a bunch. Yeah, it was a bunch, yeah. Um, we had the one big bear on the ground, which we'll talk about in a minute. But um, the first morning, the first bear we treed, it was probably 100, 130, somewhere in that area. It was a smaller bear, and you chose not to take it. You wanted you wanted to take an actual trophy, and you passed up on several bears throughout throughout the, the, those three days. And then on the last day, we had that one on the ground. You was talking about was falling in the water. Um, you know, Maddie, Maddie talks about that all the time. Like, I look when I come up out of there, I look like a wet Sasquatch. You know, we went down in this um, nightmare of a place that we hunt, and – the bear just kept going in and out of the creek and in and out of the creek and over ledges and in and out of the creek. And I took a ton, like I fell, like I fell hard. I lost my Garmin and my phone, my radio, everything that was in my hand. And the only reason I found any of it is because I had that orange cover on my Garmin. And when the water cleared, I could see the orange enough to reach down there. When I reached down there, I felt my um, radio and my phone. So... Yeah, that was one of the tumbles, because I think you fell in, too, didn't you? Oh, I went all the way under. Yeah. I mean, it took my breath. I had, I had that I had that Marlin 4570 with no sling on it, and uh, if Marlin's listening, they need to send me any raffle. That raffle's a piece of junk. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have a sling on it, so when I fell underwater, I was trying to keep it, you know, keep it out of the water with my arm up, but that water's so cold, man. And I was in jeans and a t-shirt like an idiot. But uh, Take your breath. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hard lessons. Yeah, so just tell us, tell tell what your experience, because, I mean, you're not a hound hunter. Um, what was your experience like? What, you know, what did you like? What did you dislike? What did you take away from it? Man, I, I love spending time with, you know, you and your uh, and your buddies out there. I mean, you got a gr- good group of people out there. And, um, you know, it's, it's nice to be with locals that know where everything's at. Um, it's nice to be with good people that, uh, you know care about each other you guys you guys have a really good group of people um the hound stuff was all new to me um i don't even know if i've been around a hound before and um beautiful dogs uh really really cool setup man a lot more technical than i i thought um the navigation portion of it the technology you guys are integrating um it's really a professional process um you know for me man i i think it's pretty cool that you guys can go up there and and tree bears not take any bears come back um i know you guys are all outdoorsmen you guys all care about you know the wildlife i'm a i'm an animal lover um you know so i'm not out there to, to slay a bunch of critters but um you know i think it's pretty cool you guys are uh use good judgment um but also are, are doing a good thing for the population out there you know calling those bears that need to be because down here in florida we have a black bear problem but it's a felony to shoot a black bear and I think I told you, I think I texted you. The you sent me the video. Yeah. Yeah. I had one kill my chicken in my backyard and I couldn't do anything about it. So I hit him with a brick, hit him in the head with a brick. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I was hoping he'd charge me because I'd shoot him because I, I had my suppressed uh, 556 with me. But I was like, at least if he scratched me a little bit, I'll, I'll justify shooting him. But uh, I got 300 blackout now, so I'm good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Then you, and then you come back in um, December for a couple days. And we was able to harvest you a, a really nice boar bear, and you did not have that forty-five seventy, did you? No, I did. I shot him with that. Is that what you I shot had him with? Him a couple times. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we was able to harvest a nice bear. Uh, it was a, it was a great experience, and you know I love to introduce people into our world that 
you know, are interested and want to learn or want to see what it is. And it was just a great experience <clears throat> for us, you know, to have you up here and to, to have you along with us and, you know, you to come back because we weren't able to take one in the early season that was, you know, a, tr- a true, a, a good bear. Um, you know, that says a whole lot that, like I said, you're not out there just to, to do whatever. So, man, we enjoyed it. And again, like I said, it started a relationship, you know, we're three, over three years now and, you know, we keep up here and there and, um, you know, I'm just appreciative of the, of the friendship for sure. Yeah. 100%. I look forward to, to keeping it going, man. We got to get some better stories. So <laughs> maybe we get you down here to Florida, go kill some alligators or something. Well, no, I'm not a pup. I like to eat alligator. I, I do like gator. <laughs> They're pretty yeah, good. You fry anything, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. So Chad, it's like I said, we, we were in uh, Maine, and this come up, and I, you know, I, you were the first person I thought of. You know, some of the, the the stories that you told us, and some of the rescue missions that you've been on, which I will not mention. Um, I'm like, who who would be better to to talk about this? So, you know, we all hunt in areas that are not easy be easily accessible. Um, not all the time, and yeah, you know, we're lucky sometimes when we trade right beside the road or whatever. You know, and some of us. If you guys are listening, you know, if you're like me, like I like to slide off by myself sometimes and hunt by myself, and that's very not safe. <laughs> you know, it's it's not. What happens if I, you know, step down in a rock bar and, and snap a leg or, um, you know, fall? Uh, I was on a cliff last year and ended up taking a bear. I was on the side of a cliff on a ledge, and, I mean, that could have went really, really, really bad for me. Um, and I've been in, I have been in other tight circumstances throughout my hunting career, not not just bear hunting, um, you know, deer hunting and turkey hunting. I've been in, you know, some sticky situations before. Um, so I thought about, you know, I, I thought about you and maybe you, we can run down some scenarios and talk about, you know, some first aid, some things that we can do to prepare ourselves um when you talk about our group the there's one thing that's unique about the guys that i hunt with um of course in my in my profession i have to be certified in first aid and cpr which basic first aid okay um it's nothing beyond that that i would i can take care of a lot of stuff but not not to the extent that you did um you know forrest hunts with us he's on the fire department He's, again, you know, first aid, CPR. And then we have Fuzz, who's a deputy, first aid, CPR. You know, Wesley was a a hose dragger, too, first aid, CPR. And then we hunt, you know, Garrett's with us, and he's a veterinarian. Like, you know, I would trust him to do some things to me if he needed to. So our group is unique because we have several guys, I mean, a handful of guys that if something went south – we could we could get by for a short amount of time at the minimum. Um, one of the things that I started doing last year that I hadn't done before, but it was after a conversation Chris and I had, is I've got tourniquets laying everywhere for my job. So on the bottom of my chest rig this year, uh, well, actually I did it last year, but on the bottom of my chest rig, I've got a tourniquet, you know, on my chest rig. And, and it's, you know, we can use a belt, shoelaces, whatever, absolutely. But I had several laying around, so I just put it in there. So 
I'm just going to hand it over to you. Like, what are some things that we should, if we could, if we're capable of carrying? You know, you see how we travel. We travel pretty light. Um, you know, sometimes some of us, some of the guys use backpacks. Um, like I said, I, I'm a minimalist. I, I just wear a chest rig, and that's it. I don't like a big bulky stuff on me, so I, I travel as light as I can. So, yeah, I'm gonna leave it to you. You're the professional. I want to learn from you. Yeah, so I think um, you can approach it a couple different ways. One's the planning aspect of what you guys are going and doing. And so, you know, maybe before the season starts, you got you know people you're hunting with. You guys sit down and, you know, what's going to be in what truck, right? So, um, you know, having a, a litter for mobility is really important. Um, they're really hard to make in the field when you need one. And so that could either be a poleless litter, something to drag someone on. You know, it could be like you're dragging a deer in the woods or an elk. Um, you know, but some material that's durable enough for you to drag someone on the ground. The next one's, you know, if you wanted to have a pole litter and if you wanted to invest in that, it's probably a worthy investment if this is your, you know, this is your big hobby. Um, but whose trucks are going to be in? You know, who's going to be responsible? Who do we call? Um, and setting those roles and responsibilities up early. And so, um, and then when everybody's carrying, you know, if you got a good hunting crew that you're going to go out with every season and, and you guys want to professionalize it, you know, maybe you make it a standard, kind of like the military does. And, hey, man, we're going to carry this as a first line piece of equipment. Everyone's going to have a tourniquet. Everyone's going to have, you know, maybe it's a signaling device. Um, you know, if there's no cell phone, you know, communication, maybe it's something they can signal with. And maybe a really, you know, really small fire starting kit because you guys hunt up there when it gets kind of cold at night. Um, and maybe a space blanket or something like that. But keeping it light, but keeping it packed up and, and cheap enough that everyone can buy and put on their kit. Um, and then, you know, holding everybody accountable. Hey, man, if you're going to hunt with us, you got to play ball because um, they might be treating you or you might be treating them. And so, um, and then you're also coming up on other people that aren't in your career that you got to take care of potentially. And so I think planning is the first piece that I'd, I'd bring up. And whatever your plan is, as long as everybody knows it, um, you guys are way better prepared than everybody else. Uh, in the military, we overplan things to it. You know, we, I, I guess we don't overplan. We plan really well and we plan um, exhaustively. And so if we're going to go do an operation in a certain area, uh, me as the PJ, I know, hey, we're not going to be able to get helicopters in here. So I know I need to be able to move them by the ground. Um, if I don't have vehicles, you know, how far can I drag these guys? And you said, you're, you know, you're working with big boys. You know, the guys I work with, were, you know, big boys too, in full kit, 300 pounds. Um, I'm not moving them on my own very far. So, you know, you're talking through all that stuff. And, you know, I, I look at it like a military op. So you, you'd have somebody carries a litter so that might be in a vehicle. Maybe it's something you dump out at a, at a kind of like a rally point. Maybe you establish that. You guys all have, you guys can all share your positions because now you know, you know where your dogs are. Um, you know, so pushing out a position, it's a rally point. Um, you know, like my my circumstance out there, I didn't know where I was when I went down to the creek and I was in the water. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, if you guys say, hey, man, if you go to the, you know, the far, you know, southern edge of that river, that's going to be a rally point. So if we don't see you, we're going to meet you down there. Um, just establishing those things. Some of the areas don't really matter because you guys know those woods like the back of your hand. Um, but maybe if you're hunting a new spot. Second thing is, I think, kit. And so... Um, yeah, I think tourniquets are important, but I think out there you're probably more likely to, to break a bone, like a long bone, be yep. immobilized, mm -hmm. not be able to move your body, not be able to move yourself. And if you ever broke a femur or a long bone in your leg, 
splinting it is the most important thing you can do. A lot of things you can splint with. You can splint with your rifle, obviously, unloaded, you know, strapped around, going to your crotch. Uh, Glad you said that. Your, yeah, strap it to your good leg, um, you know, legs together, and, and then that keeps them somewhat mobilized. Um, a lot of times if you lose pulse of a limb because you broke it so badly, you have to straighten it out. That's the only time you really, you know, manipulate a, a limb. Mm -hmm. if, it's, you know, if it's angled 90 degrees, you still got a pulse in your, the bottom of your foot. You don't need to mess with it. Uh, a lot of times when you move those long bones, uh, you can do more damage. And so I know it's not, it's kind of gross to splint a leg when it's at 90 degrees, but um, if they got a pulse on it, don't mess with it, man. But splint long bones is hard. So, but when you're out in the woods, if you got the ability to cut down some, you know, some good green wood um, and splint those things up uh, and then make a litter, um, you can make a litter by two long pieces of wood with a jacket, you know, a couple jackets in the middle. Um, that usually carries somebody out. Um, but I, I think litter making is probably and mobility is the most important thing you guys got to face in your terrain. Um, I don't think it applies to everybody's, but, um, but yeah, I think long bones are a big one. And then if everyone's safe with their firearms, shouldn't have too many problems, but you got guns firing in the woods. I mean, there's always a chance somebody's going to get hit. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really where, you know, tourniquets are important. And um, not like gut, not every, you know, gutting a bear, you know, trying to gut an animal and you slip yeah. and you cut, you know, cut your, sure. you know, yeah, and would you, real quick, and I didn't mean to interrupt you, would you yeah. just go back and exp explain what a litter is, like, so everybody understands what, what that is visually? Yeah, so, I mean, a litter is just something you can use to carry a, a body, right? So, um, you know, there's prefabricated litters that have basically, you know, two long poles, so four handles um, that can be carried by two people or four people. Um, a lot of times if you have like we use a thing called a skedco and a skedco is just a hard piece of plastic that's got some rigging on it and it's got multiple hand holds on it you can buy skedcos they're really expensive they're i think they're like five six hundred bucks um but really there isn't anything better for your terrain as a skedco because you can drag it with one person and so if you got if you got hurt both your legs are broken i'll put you in the skedco I, I rig you up real nice and tight and i'll, I'll kind of go into also padding and and hypothermia prevention mm -hmm. but and those things should be in that litter as well but i could drag you myself up a, up, up and down the side of a mountain in the skidco um i mean if you're really getting serious and you really want to protect yourself i think that's a good investment you might be able to buy them used on ebay the other side of things are you know if you can find some some really durable um you know hard plastic or hard material you could probably make your own just something to drag somebody out maybe it's a one-time use mm -hmm. but uh, that that's a litter, and so there's different types. Um, there's a couple books. There's one book called uh, Freeing of the Hills, and it's about mountain rescue. But inside that book, they talk about how to make um, field expedient litter. So you got a rope and you got some long sticks. You can make a nice litter, but man, for for being in the states, it's mostly just getting them out of there. You know, getting them to a hospital, and so you know if it's a broken leg. Yeah, you're gonna suck it up. We're gonna drag you over. It's gonna hurt. Um, if they're really bad and it's a broken back, that's when you need to spend the time to make the litter. So, mm -hmm. um, and a lot of times, if it's a long bone in the leg, I mean, you could throw them over your back too and carry them. Um, you know, depending on how much pain they're in and, and how well you splint it. But if it's a broken back or a broken neck, yeah, you got to take the time to make the litter. So. I got you. Yeah, and I mean, you know, you and I were talking about it just a little while ago. You know, there's. There's some places that, that 
that I hunt, and you you've been in a couple of them, that no matter which direction you go, it's four miles, and you, you can't land a bird there. You can't get a four wheeler into most of those places. They're go- you're going to have to be carried to an access point somehow, some way, and it's not. I don't care which way you're going. You're going to pull up some some point in time. It, there's just no other way around it. Um, so getting somebody out would be a, a made. Well, I mean, even if rescue, and that's another thing. You know, if if in some of these areas it's mostly volunteer that's not even paid, and these yeah. guys are working and have jobs, and I mean, it could be a six or eight hour, ten hour, you know, adventure to to the, for that right. to happen. Well, yeah, I think the other the other piece is pain medication, right? You say time. When you say time, I think pain. And, you know, when you don't have narcotics to give somebody, you know, what can you do, in, you know, in place of that? And I will tell you that high-dose Tylenol does a lot for pain. You can mm-hmm. carry it over the counter. I would carry it on my body in a, in a waterproof little baggie. Um, you know, if, and don't quote me on the dosages because you probably, I mean, depending on what your medical situation is and you talk to your doctor, but um, usually high doses of Tylenol. Um, do pretty darn well for most injuries. And so what we would do is, you know, we would combine drugs together because a lot of them have um, what they call potentiation, like they work really well together. Mm-hmm. Um, and we would also dose them with antibiotics early. So if it's a long bone break or you, let's say one of your guys is punctured by a, a branch in the abdomen, like if, if you're on the field for 10 hours, that's going to get infected. Mm-hmm. And you're going to be sepsis by the time you get to the hospital. So, you know, there's broad spectrum antibiotics you can carry. The problem is, is, you know, being, you know, unless you're a paramedic or an EMT, um, are you going to be administering that to your, you know, your friends, you know, potentially. Um, but I think there's, there's a lot you can do. There's a book that I love. It's called Ditch Medicine. Um, it's on Amazon, I'm sure, eBay, whatever. But Ditch Medicine talks about all the things you can do without having a hospital. Um, without having really high-level medical training and to sit on a patient for a long time in the woods. And um, the book quotes a lot of stuff from out of Southeast Asia, um, you know, during Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, like how do you pack a wound with uh, gauze and honey and have the honey draw out the infection through osmosis? Um, it talks about splinting, all this basic stuff. And so you don't need to be a medic to, to read that book and really get a lot out of it. But... Back to the pain management stuff. Um, If you splint, you reduce pain, right? Because every time you move bones together, it it creates pain. Um, So splinting's first, but then getting some medicine on board, um, you know, so making sure no one's, you know, allergic before you're going out there, go back to planning. You know, if your crew of, of, you know, 10 guys that are out there, any of them allergic to, you know, any any medications. If If you know that going into it, you can dose them up with a lot of Tylenol some antibiotics and and potentially really give them good care um, as you transport them out. The only other thing I was thinking when you were talking about movement is your guys' trucks all have kennels in the back. And I don't know if you guys even have a truck that's empty in the back to to move somebody through. Um, Because if their back's broken, you're not putting them in the back of your truck. You're going to put them in the the bed. Um, Can you remove the kennels? Can you get them out of there and come back for them? So that all goes into planning. Uh, to me, but um, I'll stop yapping for a second. <clears throat> no, um, no, I think you're hitting, you know, hitting on some really good topics. Um, 
I would hope that if we could get somebody to access points or trailheads, then we, you know, rescue should be there to be able to do that transport. But I'm also would not be opposed to driving my truck down through the middle of the woods to get somebody out for 200, 300 yards either if I needed to. So, um, yeah. that that's something else. So how important, Chad, like let's say that, that I stepped over in a rock bar and I snapped my leg, um, which could happen. I mean, we've done it on canine tracks. We've had two canine handlers break their legs on canine tracks at night. Again, rescues on standby. They're immediately available. It's really not a big issue other than they're going to be out of work for six to eight weeks, right? So right. if let's say that I, I step down in a, in a rock bar and I snap my leg. And then, you know, I radio, if I'm able to get to my radio, because my radio does strap on me and it's tethered to me, so I can't lose it. It's always attached to me, and I've done that too. Um, how important is it for me to actually start moving them until maybe a, a, a paramedic or something can get to them? Because that could be, uh, again, in some of the places that I hunt, I mean, it may take them two hours to hike in, and that's at a good hike to hike into me. That's after I fail, I've contacted somebody to make a phone call, which they're probably going to have to be in phone service. I may not be. Um, so we're looking at, let's just say we're looking at a four-hour window here somewhere in that area. The Journey on Houndsman XP has teamed up with one TDC. This dual-action support for oral health and mobility in our dogs. This unique supplement is so effective that it is recommended by top veterinarian experts worldwide to maintain and improve our dog's health in four different areas. Their oral health, hips, joints, and muscles, skin, coat, energy, and recovery. Guys, I've been using this product for the last six months, and it has been a game changer for me. If you're looking for something to help with the overall health of your dog, Go to WorkSoWell.com and give this product a try. It is highly recommended by Houndsman XP here on the journey. It's it's completely circumstance dependent, right? I mean, do you need advanced medical you know care to move them? Mm -hmm. um, if you know which bone it is, I mean, femurs are um, yeah are really dangerous bones to break. I mean, if you break a femur one, you've had a significant mechanism of injury to break it, right? So mm -hmm. significant fall, significant impact. And, and and that bone has a lot of bleeding internally, right? So, you know, it produces red blood cells and um, and that's a really painful bone. Uh, the tib-fib, um, you know, you can have problems with tib-fib, compartment syndrome, bleeding inside the cavity. Um, but for the most part, you know, especially if you break a fibula, like you can survive, you're not, you're going to survive small bone. Um, but what, I, what I would say is more important in that scenario is exposure. And so, um, you know, treating for exposure early, what we don't give credit to a lot of times. And, you know, even in the summertime up there, it gets cold at night, you know, mm -hmm. especially if you're sweaty, uh, wind starts blowing they're, maybe they're not dressed appropriately. Um, that'll catch up again. It's insidious, right? So if you start getting cold, it's really hard to warm back up. And if they have any kind of like multi-trauma in their body, mm -hmm. their body's already fighting to kind of take care of everything else. And so hypothermia just exacerbates all the other stuff you got to worry about. And so, you know, when I come up on somebody, the first thing I'm thinking, you know, obviously the injury kind of looking at the scenario, is it safe? Is there, is there rocks above us that are going to fall on us? Do I need to move them just for safety? 
Um, are they wet? Do I need to get them a dry area? But then it's how do I, you know, get the wet clothes off, get dry clothes on them, and then wrap them up and bundle them and let them preserve all that heat, um, you know, because it might be a long night, right? Mm-hmm. We might not be able to move them at all. And those paramedics that come out there might never, you know, might not find us in the morning. And so it would really suck to have a broken leg and then die from hypothermia. So um, that's where a space blanket comes in real handy. They're super small. They're dirt cheap. Yep. Um, you get that thing out, get a bunch of pine straw, put a bunch of pine straw underneath their their butt and their back, you know, so you're basically not um, losing heat from transfer on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, kind of build them to a little nest, get that space blanket around them. Um, but you need to be thinking, am I going to move them? So if you are going to move them, don't make them perfect in, in a cocoon before you set up the litter to move them, right? Mm-hmm. So what happens a lot of times, you're like, okay, we'll, we'll get them, you get, get them all, you know, tucked in, they're warm, and then we build a litter, and now we got to move them again. And so, you know, it kind of goes into planning. We want to make our movements as minimal as we can. We want to think through everything. And another thing I'll bring up is a lot of times, you know, many hand, you know, kind of like many cooks in the kitchen kind of makes things more difficult sometimes. If someone's got training like you, Heath, maybe you, you're not so involved in the packing and building the litter. Maybe you're stepping back and watching the scenario. You're looking at what needs to be done and kind of directing. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you're, you're not working as hard, but that position is really essential. Because um, if everyone's heads down, a lot of times you miss things around you. What's an environmental condition? What's the sun doing? How much time we got? Who's called somebody? Um, do they have another injury that we didn't even notice? And so uh, if you have the ability to have more more than one, two people, somebody coming out and being kind of the eyes and ears and kind of the, the calm logic to the situation um, can can really do a lot of good. So, uh, so, so not everyone has to be moving around with their hands. Yeah. And I know through our training, through our alert and race training, you're telling exactly what the the tl is supposed to do is supposed to give direction exactly. and yeah so yep. um perfect so hypothermia just kind of go over that real quick and then i want to talk about a little bit of shock how what are some ways that we can help or reduce or, or prevent that from from going in full effect until we can get them medical attention you like to be outside like i do hunting fishing hiking if so onyx is the app for you I've been a loyal Onyx user for years. It's the one app that I can honestly say I use daily. While hunting, I know where I'm at at all times. I mark trails, bedding areas, feeding areas, and the list goes on. In my travels, I use it to pre-scout all the new places that I am blessed to hunt. Last year while hiking Yellowstone, I used Onyx to map out the trails and know the difficulty of each one. And here's a secret. I mark all of my favorite fishing spots on Onyx. It's been a game changer for me at work. I've used it multiple times to get in touch with property owners. Onyx has so many great features and tools, you can literally use it in your everyday life. It is, by far, the best mapping app on the market. And hey, it's approved by yours truly at Houndsman XP. So when you go to subscribe to Onyx, use our code HXP20 and get you a discount. So get your journey started with Onyx and know where you stand. 
you know, hypothermia, there's charts out there that show you, you know, how much cold water exposure you can have for your, you basically can't bounce back from it. And it becomes kind of that lethal mix of, of time and temperature. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of that's preventable in the mountains, especially if you dress right. Um, you know, I was an idiot for wearing jeans and, and a shirt out there. <laughs> you know? and, and, you know, guys dress better now. There's better equipment. It's affordable. You know, you can wear a nice polypropylene shirt that's going to dry fast. Don't matter if it gets wet. Um, your pants are important, but what's underneath them, you know, uh, dress for the environment. If you're out out of your truck and you're running and it's the wintertime and it's snow on the ground and you're sweating and you take your jacket off before you go because you know you're going to sweat. You know, when we talk about planning, if we had gone to that a little bit better, yeah, maybe I need to carry a pack because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to basically shed equipment, put it in the pack so I have it when I need it to put it back on. And, um, yeah, hyperthermia is, is a preventable process, you know, and so it's really our lack of planning. Um, or we got stuck somewhere and we, we got wet, mm-hmm. you know, but everything else I think is preventable in my opinion. I don't know if you feel differently about hypothermia. Well, yeah, but I mean, let's say that, um, um, you know, I've got injured and, You've said it before, you know, wrap some jackets around them, keep them warm. Those space blankets, man, they roll up to nothing. I mean, anybody that's carrying a a backpack should have, like, literally, I'm just sitting here thinking, I mean, I've got two or three in my trunk of my car, you know, for work. Um, And I'm thinking, you know, how small, they, they don't take up space, they're small. You know, if I was carrying a backpack... There's no reason not to have that in there, and like I said, they're they're very they're very inexpensive. Um, so I mean, you you kind of got my wheels turning. Like I know this stuff, but I've not like sat down and said, okay, you know, I I do carry matches in a dry proof case. I mean, I got a little orange. Um, it looks like a Tylenol bottle, basically. It's got the matches and a little bit of um, cotton in it to start. I carry yeah. that. I do have that. And I'm sitting here now. I'm thinking, okay, what do I need to put in my, like, my kit is basically a chest rig. It's very limited on space, but I, I got to turn it, get to t- attached to the bottom of it. I got that covered. I've got matches because, you know, I learned that several years ago. Um, Tylenol, I, could, I can put a handful of Tylenol in a Ziploc bag and stick it down one of the pouches. So I reduce the, the space for the bottle. I can do that. And now I'm thinking, you know, of course, I carry a knife in my kit, and I carry one on me. So I've got two knives if I need it. Um, Space blanket, I don't know that I can get in my... I don't think I can get it in my kit. I'm going to have to to see how good I can fold it up. So what are some other things, Chad, that you may suggest? Like, let's say that I'm carrying a backpack. Let's go with a back, a small backpack. Um... So we got matches, we've got some type of tourniquet, and I like I said, I know people, you can use a belt for a tourniquet, but a lot of belts will give where the tourniquets won't. Um, that's something that you've got to continue to 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 keep in mind. I got matches, I got a tourniquet, um, I'm carrying a small backpack, I got my Badlands backpack on, so I'm going to throw a, a, I'm going to throw a space blanket in there. What are some other things that I can do or carry? That's not going to consume a lot of space, but it's going to give me a leg up. So I think survival before I think medical, personally. Um, I think of headlamp, you know, a cheap headlamp in there. I got it. With fresh ba- fresh batteries, right? Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and maybe maybe a, a protein bar in there or something like that. Um, you know, because if I get it, you're not going to die from starvation in a night. Um, I carry little things like little maybe a couple of water purification tabs in there. Um, you know, as I crush an algae and you get the fresh water, get it clean. Those things aren't going to kill you though. If you get a parasite, you're not going to die from it. Um, it's not great to have diarrhea in the field, but uh, <laughs> you ain't going to die. Um, yeah, I, I always carry stuff like a dry pair of socks. I mean, I, I just think, you know, how do we survive and keep moving? Um, the other thing I would, I would recommend is a signaling device. Um, so you can have a little mirror that will signal an aircraft, especially if you're really, really lost. Um, you have a little hole in the middle. If you've seen those, you basically look at the sun, get the reflection in your hand, then you, you signal it towards the aircraft and they'll find you. The other way to do that is to have a really, um, really thin piece of like, almost like parachute material, but a bright orange color. Um, so a lot of times if you're hunting, you got some orange on you, but mm -hmm. this basically stretches out a fabric that's big, you know, maybe it's a two by two piece of fabric and it folds up to nothing again, you stuff it in your shirt. Um, and that at least will allow a helicopter to find you, um, if you're, if you're alone. And so I think of survival first, I think of fire starting in second, I don't carry matches anymore. I carry just a cheap big lighter and usually some dryer lint maybe put some Vaseline on it and then throw it in a Ziploc bag. And I know I can start a fire even as bad as I am at certain fires. <laughs> um, but, but that'll keep you alive. Right. And so the space blanket for sure, keep warm. Um, on the tourniquet thing, I just, I want to touch on that real quick because having a tourniquet isn't as important as knowing how to use a tourniquet. Mm -hmm. So, um, tourniquet uses a skill, right? It's not every time you're bleeding, you don't need a tourniquet. You need to identify what kind of blood it is. If it's bright blood and it's spurting, you need a tourniquet, okay? Mm -hmm. But your first thing it is to do not grab the tourniquet is stop the bleeding. So let's say I'm with you, Heath, and you're bleeding out your leg, you're spurting blood. The first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to throw my knee in your leg with all my body weight into it. Mm -hmm. And so every ounce of blood that I preserve in your body is going to save you for the hours that you're in the field with me, right? Mm -hmm. If I watch your blood spurt and I'm like, oh, I need to grab a tourniquet. You're still spurting. I'm looking through my kit. I find my tourniquet. It's still spurting blood. Every ounce that you've lost now is the potential. When we talk about shock, is mm -hmm. leading you down that road to shock that's going to be really hard to recover from. So, um, first thing I do is stop the bleeding. So I'm going to throw my knee into you, put all my weight into you. You're going to hate me for it. I'm going to tell you shut up, and I'll grab my my tourniquet. When I find the tourniquet, I'm going to locate just above the injury. Okay, so not not right on top of it, just above it. Um, and if you're, if you have a joint in between, you go above the joint, um, and then you get that tourniquet on and you're going to work that tourniquet until the bleeding stops. So you're not going to go past it. You're going to just enough to bleeding stops. You're going to secure it. Um, and then you're going to cover it up. And so you can keep a tourniquet on for a few hours without losing the limb. But if you're in the field for an extended period of time, you need to constantly relook the tourniquet. Um, you need to readdress it. Because uh, if you move a, you know, if you move somebody through the mountains, that tourniquet's going to get jostled, and they'll start bleeding on you, and you won't see it. Because now you've covered them up with a space blanket, right? Mm -hmm. And so they're bleeding inside the space blanket, and you don't realize they're bleeding to death. And so you move them, you reassess everything. You move them, reassess. So why I bring up tourniquets is you don't always need a tourniquet. Right. And if it's oozing blood, and it could be a lot of blood, but you're oozing blood, first thing is pressure. Just like I said, throwing the knee into it. Um, you know, elevate the limb, obviously. But then a pressure dressing applied right can do just as much as a tourniquet nine times out of ten. In combat situations, tourniquets are kind of thrown around loosely because 
hey, man, we don't know what we got. We're still in a gunfight. Throw a tourniquet on. In the mountains, you got the opportunity to kind of relax and say, okay, this is bad. How do we get a pressure dressing on this? And a pressure dressing is basically a ball of material. It could be your T-shirt. You tie it into a knot, put it on there. You put that knot or that big ball of material onto the wound, and then you're wrapping it so tight. It's almost like a tourniquet, but you're wrapping pressure on that point into the injury uh, and to get that, that oozing to stop. And if the, the, you know, the, the thing you put on there, the material you put on there, it soaks up blood, you probably didn't do it tight enough, right? And so we got to stop the bleeding with the pressure dressing. Um, and so on a leg, that's a, that's a hard task, man. That's a lot of meat there, right? Um, on an arm, you know, to do a pressure dressing is okay. You can do it. Um, the real problem, Heath, and I don't even know if we want to talk about this because it might confuse people, but injury to the abdomen, those are really hard injuries to deal with. And it could happen to you guys. It could be a shot. You could get a gunshot to the abdomen on accident. Uh, maybe you're carrying your rifle wrong. You shoot yourself in the stomach. Maybe you impale yourself falling down, mm-hmm. you know, side of a, a cliff and you impale yourself in the stomach. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you slice, maybe you slice it as you're tripping down, your knife comes out. But, um, I'm going to try to simplify this as much as I can so you don't have to be a medic to do this, but if your guts come out and you put the guts back in your body. Yeah, I know it sounds dramatic, but, um, get the guts, but scoop them up. And if you've, you know, gutted an animal, you know what that looks like when they come out, you know, it's going to be hard to put them back in. You get them back in and try to close the stomach up best you can. Um, that, that's why, oh, I just almost forgot. Having a roll of duct tape is something I'd have in my bag too. I was going to say duct tape. Um, <laughs> yeah, good duct tape though. I would bring oh by the highest, highest quality duct tape I could. If I was gonna have a roll of duct tape, I make sure it's good duct tape. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that uh, gorilla glue stuff, that black stuff, man. It's that my kids use for everything when it's like twenty dollars roll, and they use it to like tape sticks together. <laughs> um, but I'd have something like that because you could duct tape the stomach up, you clean the blood off, and at least get it closed up enough to move. Um, but the stomach's tough because you need to keep. Uh, basically what we call a um uh, occlusive dressing and so occlusive means that it's basically like a hard sheet of plastic or some kind of thing that uh doesn't let air come in and out of and so you want to put that on there and you want to keep the heat from coming out of the stomach because you're gonna lose a lot of heat if your guts come out the other big one that's gonna kill you um and tell me if i'm getting too deep into this stuff but the other one's a chest injury and so if you get a puncture to the lungs and you can hear it wheezing on their side, they need to get that thing covered up. Mm-hmm. And so the first thing you do is cover it with their your their hand. They can cover their wound up, okay? And then you need to find something. If you got duct tape on you, you're a hero because you can basically cover that hole up. And the sooner you cover it up, the less air is going to come into that cavity and push their lung and collapse it. Mm-hmm. If they have a ton of air in there, you have to burp that thing. And so you have to eventually open that thing up every now and then and let the air come out of that hole. Um, I don't recommend people doing field surgery out there because they're just going to hurt somebody. But covering it up, you know, if, if they can't breathe, you know, that lungs, lungs collapsed. And so they really need to get out of there fast. Mm. Um, and then the last one I'll tell you is a head injury. And so, um, you know, knowing the guys you're with, you know, um, I got friends that, You'd think they get head injuries, but they don't. Uh, so know, knowing who they are is important. Um, do they know where they're at? You know, if they smack their head real hard on the rock. Mm-hmm. Um, look at their pupils. Are their pupils reactive to light? 
Um, do they know what day it is and who you are? If they start slipping, um, you need to be very careful about getting them treatment fast. Because if they have swollen in their brain um, and they have a small bleed in their brain, uh, it's going to catch up to them real quick. And so not a whole heck of a lot you can do in the field, um, but recognizing it early and getting them treatment as a priority and passing that information off to the helicopter because they might send the helicopter with a hoist and hoist them out if they're that bad, right? Mm-hmm. If they have a hole in their side and their lungs collapsing, that's information you have to pass off to the paramedics so that, um, yeah, maybe they do send the helicopter with the hoist and they pick them up out of the, out of the woods. Um, you know, otherwise, broken leg, yeah, get in the truck, suck it up, mm-hmm. take some Tylenol. Um, I'm trying to think of other big ones. In the military, we call it life limb or eyesight. So if you're going to lose the limb, we're going to get you out of there fast. If you're going to lose your eyesight, we're going to get you out of there fast. Um, and if you're dying from shock, we're going to get you out of there fast. So tell me if you want to talk about shock. Yeah, that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about shock a little bit because that's, you know, in my field, you know, not as extensive as you, but all these things that you're talking about, everything, everything that you've talked about, I've seen in my job. Um, so it's easier for me to recognize it because I, I see it and I've seen it more than once and more than I need to see it, honestly. So identifying what you know, I think you already said, it, identifying the, the issue and getting that information to the first responders is very important. Um, and I know that we're not always going to be accurate with our um, information because we may not know. But so shock. Talk about shock. Yeah, so there's a bunch of different types of shock. Um, you know, in the military, the most likely type of shock is usually um, hypovolemic. So you've lost so much blood that you go into shock. Uh, that could certainly happen out in the woods. Um, it could happen internally because you're bleeding internally from an injury to the gut. Um, or chest, and so it's a large cavity, right, can fill a lot of blood. Um, or it can happen from an extremity injury where maybe you didn't do a good tourniquet or pressure dressing, and there have been leaking blood. When you get to a point where you've lost, you know, one to two units of blood, let's, call, let's just call them liters for the sake of mm-hmm. the conversation, yep. you're, you're okay. Like, I'm going to be okay if I lose a liter of blood. Um, it's going to look really dramatic, but I'm going to be okay. Two liters... Now we're getting a little more serious, okay? And you're going to start seeing changes in my behavior. You're going to see changes in my color, uh, my cognition. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, color will come next. <laughs> and color will start, if you think about the body, the body cares about the vital organs first. It cares about right. your brain and your heart first and your lungs and then your organs inside your gut. Those kind of get some love. And then your extremities are last. Because your body knows you don't need your extremities to live. And so if you think about it as a system, your body says, okay, well, we need the blood back because we got to protect the brain. And so it starts shutting down your limbs. Mm-hmm. And when it shuts down your limbs, you're, you're basically your vascular system constricts. And then your skin starts turning white. Have you ever seen somebody with hypothermia and their skin's white? Same thing with shock. They're going to be really cool to the touch. They're going to start looking kind of ashen. It's kind of like a grayish color. Um, and and that's your that's a telltale sign, and that and when that happens, it's a late sign for shock too. So things are really serious at this point. And if this person doesn't get the hospital soon, they're going to die. Um, and if you don't make a correct intervention soon, they will be an irreversible shock. So there's nothing the doctors going to be able to do to bring these people back. They're going to die. And we call that circling the, the you know kind of circling the drain. Uh, once that starts, 
Um, you could get them on the operating table, you know, put six liters of blood in, or six units of blood in them, get them warmed up, and there's not much you're going to do for them. So that's where hypothermia comes in, right? Because hypothermia exacerbates shock. So if you're already shocky and you've lost a lot of blood and you're hypothermic on top of it, your body's working overtime now to heat your body and keep it keep you alive. And so what we always say in the military is, you know, um, you're not dead until you're warm and dead. And so even if we have someone who's dying, they're going to be warm when they come in because we know that's something that we can do to reduce their chances of dying. And it's preventable, right? Hypothermia is preventable. Um, the shock and the blood loss is preventable. If you're there on, on time, you put pressure and you treat it appropriately, it's a preventable death. Um, if it's something inside the box, abdomen, you know, inside the lungs, heart, like those are outside of most of our capabilities. And those are things that I, I wouldn't consider preventable or they're not treatable in the field. Unless you, I mean, you can do a lot of crazy things for the lungs, but you know, I, I wouldn't recommend you know, for this audience to be even thinking about that kind of stuff. Right. Um, but yeah, shock's insidious. And once it starts, um, it goes fast. And so once you start seeing the signs of shock in their body, uh, they don't have much longer. Uh, they, they need to be out of there immediately. And so that's when he, when you're the team leader or you're the, you're, you're the guy, that's the, the logical guy in the group. Um, if you start seeing those signs, that's a time when I don't care about their limbs, right? I don't care if their legs broken. You're going on my back, and I'm running you out of there. I'm getting you the truck, and, and we are going to blow through everything to get you to the hospital and, and save your life. But, um, again, it's preventable. It takes time to get there. It doesn't happen in an hour. You don't get shock in an hour, you know, unless you're just cutting their legs off and letting them bleed. Um, it takes time. And so the decisions you make on, on exfiltration, on making that litter, the decisions you make on preventing hyperthermia, um, and good management of the blood that they are losing, um, you can prevent. To ever, you should never see shock in the field if you do those things correctly. Well, I'm just sitting here, you know, kind of going over what you've said. And, you know, even even with us, like I said, we have a very um, diverse and unique group because of our, our jobs and the stuff that we're involved in um, professionally. You know, we've never sat down and had it put a plan together, you know, and I'm sitting here thinking, okay, you know, we need a plan, you know, who's going to do what, and it may be them we're working on, but we have certain people that can do certain things, you know, we have certain people that um, you can delegate other stuff to, um, you know, who's going to call and get rescue and route, give them our coordinates, which with the GPSs, that's simple, you know, I was just sitting here thinking over my head, okay, so that's that's the first thing is sitting down and having a plan i'm gonna put a few extra things in my truck or in my in my um chest rig and then i'm thinking okay what's next then um you know just you're sitting here saying you know if you're prepared it doesn't happen and i'm telling myself i'm not i am prepared in my mind but i'm not because um i don't have all this stuff planned out I didn't have the plan in place, so therefore I'm not prepared to take care of it. There's a couple other ones I'd bring up too, just because these are easy things to to figure out beforehand. Does someone have a heart condition? Right, mm-hmm. you're probably hunting with guys who are older sometimes. Hey, easy um, now, you know, it's maybe, me. Well, this hey, I got friends <laughs> that are old that probably need to watch their heart, and uh, you know, if if they do, um, you know, do you know how to do CPR? Does everybody know mm-hmm. how to do CPR? 
do they have an existing heart condition? Do they have nitroglycerin? Do they have in their truck? Should they have in their pocket? Because um, you know CPR is only going to do so much. Mm-hmm. So aspirin, aspirin's easy to carry if they're the guy that has that problem. The other one's diabetes, and so um, you know knowing who you're with, if they have diabetes, do they have glucose on them? Because that's what's going to save their life, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so you know, it go, it, but that's planning. Because if you have a crew of people that you're going to hunt with all season, and there's 10 of you, you know, and you guys really trust each other, like, let's talk about what we got going on. Do we have, you know, pre-existing medical conditions that we need to know about? If you do, how do I care for you? Um, and, you know, you know, you got a lot of capable people in, in your hunting crew. So, you know, does everybody know how to do CPR? I know a few of you do, but really, you guys could teach that in the off season. Because um, it might be you that needs it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it's not just, here's the other thing, man. There's a million things that happen in the woods. You get hit mm-hmm. by lightning in the woods, you're, you're probably going to need CPR. And so it's not just, you know, the guy who's old and overweight. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's, hey, man, I was under a tree and it got blasted and it, it stopped my heart. And so, um, yeah, man, there's a million things that can go wrong. You're not going to be able to prepare for all of them. Um, but generally speaking, you can cover uh, cover a lot of them. So, Yeah. And, you know, before we wrap this up, I, yeah, I mean, like I said, I think having a plan, being prepared, I can definitely prepare myself better than what I am. Just, And I thought I was pretty prepared. Now that you've added to it, I'm like, yeah, I can do that, and I need to do that. Uh, being prepared, um, I think it's, I mean, that's the biggest thing. And, I mean, shock, which, like I said, shock and hypothermia, you know, we can prevent and you was talking about sticking your knee. I wanted, I wanted to tell this story when you were telling it, and I didn't. So in that extreme rescue I was watching, it was a mountain biker, and he was somewhere in some third-world country, and they had he had his GoPro on, and he was riding down the this mountain, and he jumped, and when he hit, his forks on his bike, the front forks, but broke and went up into his growing area, which was where that artery runs through. And he was doing exactly what you, that blood was like squirting everywhere. Well, his buddy had enough sense. As soon as he got there and seen it, he he applied pressure. He realized it wasn't enough. So he stuck his knee right down in that and was keeping the blood. And I I don't want to say the time because I can't, but it seemed like it took forever to get people in there. They flew people into the top. They had to hike down the mountain to where he was at. It was a it was a lengthy amount of time. I'm gonna say a couple hours, maybe a couple hours, and you know, the doctor said that because his friend was smart enough, because it was in that you know in the what is, artery, which artery is that the femoral artery? Yeah, but it, it, yeah, it goes up into your um, yeah. Was it inguinal? And and that, yeah. I mean, you can you can bleed out in seconds. That's a so I didn't talk about that because it's so hard to treat. I mean, it's hard for yeah. medics to treat that an injury to the, anywhere in the hip or pelvis. Mm-hmm. If you're bleeding there, there's special tools to prevent that bleeding because you have to basically put pressure where you have your your, your hips like mm-hmm. like this. Um, it is so hard to put enough pressure to stop that bleeding. That if he saved his life, then he's a stud because um, we've had a lot of military guys die from that injury and they get shot in that area. The, yeah, the doctors could not could not say enough uh, about it, and 
they said that's what that's what saved his life but when you said that that's what i was thinking about that bike accident i'm like you know that happens but mm. yeah we're in the woods i mean you can fall off ledges you can fall down the mountain you definitely can run stop i've had dogs run stops in themselves numerous times and it definitely could happen to me um you know like i said i was on the, the it, i was on that cliff uh, out on a ledge that if i would have fell off of that i mean i, I don't know what would happen to me i really don't i mean it could it could yeah. it literally could have killed me i'm i'm supposing um so all those things can happen. Being prepared, having the right stuff. I will have a <clears throat> with my with our group. We will we're going to have a sit down and have a a briefing basically on this to see who's got what, who's carrying what. Um, and like I said, I'll have some. You know what stuff. I, I'd ask your your vet buddy to do do you one better <clears throat> if if he can get you guys some staples. I've got them. Um, we all carry them. Yeah. Yep. yeah. I mean, because really to put that dog back together and if they get sliced in the stomach, you can staple them up in a second and keep them running. But Mm -hmm. you know that. Yeah. Yeah. We have, I've got a pretty good med kit for the dogs, honestly. Um, I think I need to do better for myself, but you know, we got taught about, you you can use those staples on your gut too. You know, that's, and that's Mm -hmm. what I'm saying. Keep your guts in. Um, we use staples like crazy because it's just such a big area, you know? Uh huh. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, there's some things there that we can cross-use for sure. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I'm, the Tylenol I'm definitely going to do. I never thought about that, honestly. But that's something that I will have in my kit. So, Chad, before we leave, any any other thoughts? I mean, you've kind of broke it down. We've kind of went through the, the main things. Um, but I think the most important thing I've taken is having a plan and being prepared. And, that, I mean, that, that sums it up for me, like, that takes care of it. Your thoughts? No, you got it. I mean, I'm, I probably need to follow my own, my own rules here because I don't do that half the time. But, you know, I think if this is your sport and you're, you know, you're into this, you know, for, for a whole season, you could easily be prepared with a, with a crew of guys. And, uh, cause it might be taking care of you, man. I mean, yeah. that's the thing is, you know, that time you take, <laughs> it really sucks. They come up on you and, they don't know what the heck they're doing. They don't have anything with them. You're just looking at yourself like, man, I'm screwed. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, you guys got some squared away dudes, so I'm sure it'd be pretty easy to, to get everybody on the same page. Well, hopefully this will hopefully put everybody else thinking a little bit forward and grabbing a few of those things here and there and having them, having them with them or, or in their vehicle. And, um, you know, we do hunt with an, uh, uh, a, a diverse group. I mean, we, we do have some some guys that are older than I am, and we have some guys that, that are younger than I am. We've got a whole, you know, age. It's the whole gamut of age. Um, we've got some truck men, you know, that stay in the truck and take care of us and come pick us up. And then, you know, you have the guys in the woods. So I know that that sugar, sugar is one of the things that one of our guys have. You know, we've got some with bad backs that could slip a disc or, you know, anything in the woods. So it's kind of put me into that thinking forward i guess more so than anything else so i i appreciate it and i think the listeners you know will take a little bit from this and be more prepared and that's what we want we want everybody to have a a good hunting season and have a safe hunting season for sure yeah man well i'm glad i could help a little bit um my information is a little bit dated but hopefully it works and I look forward to getting back up there and, and catch some uh, some musky with you. This spring, we get you got to get up this coming spring. We're gonna plan it out. 
and you get a couple days you're away. Staying on, you're staying on your podcast, so it's going to be gospel now. That's right. It's got to happen. <laughs> like, it's got to happen. <laughs> right on, man. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Chad, I look thank, forward to it, brother. Thank you for helping us teach, train, and learn, and thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Absolutely.